It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we're going to be taking a look at some reports from Headset. We're going to bring on a guest, Bo Whitney. We're going to chat about everything across North America, 15 different markets, talking about total sales, year-over-year sales growth, average basket, which breaks down to be the, the average amount of people are buying per visit. We're also going to talk about the number of products or SKUs and then same-store sales. So let's bring on our guest, Bo Whitney, Whitney Economics. Bo Whitney, he's a founder and chief economist at Whitney Economics. Whitney Economics is a global leader in cannabis and hemp business consulting, economic research, and policy advising. Bo, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Hey, thanks for having me. We'll chat about the total sales in the North American market. Again, there's 15 different markets that cannabis or that um, headset tracks for, for cannabis. And California, obviously the leader, 420 million. So looking at at these numbers california's got 2.8 billion already a lot of the um existing market being washington colorado um, california are fairly stable sales and we're starting to see california with that reverse hockey stick kind of coming down and i would say normalizing for whatever reason uh within total sales bow are you kind of seeing anything that's um trending or some anomalies we're seeing illinois massachusetts that um have consistently increased in sales maybe they're the outlier and then british columbia has higher sales and i wonder if that's just from holding out forever on uh on open stores yeah so it's really the tale of three markets um there's the mature markets like Oregon, Washington, Colorado. There's the markets that have already deployed like Illinois. Um, and then there's the new markets that are coming online. And each one has a different growth rate. And so that's why I say it's a tale of three different markets. So in the mature states, things, they're kind of hanging on. There's saturation of supply in the market. There is... Um, uh, economic distress at the retail and the supplier levels. Um, people are generally fatigued, not a whole lot of profits to be made. Um, in the in the new uh, deployed states, the existing states like Illinois, they're starting to get their legs a little bit. Um, they're deploying more uh, stores and the like. Um, and as a result, with more access and with reasonable prices, then that comes conversion of the consumer from the illicit market to legal market, and that uh, results in greater sales. Um, then you've got the new um, the new states that have just deployed, like New York, which is kind of a um, an asterisk by itself. And then um, then you've got New Jersey and other states like that. I think the one highlight in the new states is Missouri. It came on like gangbusters, very very strong. Um, looking really, really good. Um, and But New York is going to continue to struggle. There's just too much illicit market activity. Um, there's not enough movement on retail access. And so there's not um, a large amount of supply that will drive down the price and make it more competitive relative to the unregulated market. So it's a tale of three markets. Um, 
you know, a lot of it has to do with the regulatory structure um, and a lot of it has to do with market maturity. Any idea how much revenue that these stores are generating on average? Um, yeah, it's different for each state um, with and it's also dependent upon the whether or not there's limited licenses versus limited or unlimited licenses. Um, when a state has unlimited licenses, there generally is super saturation. There's a lot of supply, a lot of retail access, um, and it's, it uh, spreads the revenue out over too many stores to be economically viable. And my company has a term called the threshold of economic viability. And in these, in these states where it's super saturated and unlimited, um, they're below that threshold of economic viability, meaning, um, meaning that there's just not enough revenue to be profitable. In the limited license states, um, New Jersey, Illinois, and others, um, there you have a limited number of stores to satisfy all of the legal demand. And as a result, they go way above that threshold of economic viability, and they're they're generating revenues that you know are in the tens of millions of dollars versus per year versus the million dollar or two million dollar range well let's take a look at what's happening year over year with sales growth um, across these 15 different markets we're seeing that british columbia maybe one of the only places that saw positive year over year growth uh, illinois seeing the fastest growth of any state positive growth um, over 30 percent in let's see is that may um, is there anything that you're seeing with, uh, with sales growth? Are we, I mean, obviously negative. Um, and I think that's a lot has to do with the recovery of, uh, stimulus checks and, and overspending people kind of finding out that, that normal rate or normal amount. We're probably seeing some people shifting their preferences to maybe lower quality or whatever, as like you mentioned, some of the economic factors come into play. Um, anything else maybe to yeah. describe with that year over year sales growth declining? Yeah, what, what I'm seeing, what my team is seeing is that there was strong growth during COVID and people had a greater opportunity to um, consume even while working, um, working from home. And as a result, sales shot up through the roof. Um, in some states, 35% year-over-year growth, sustained year-over-year growth. Once the back-to-school and back-to-work started happening, uh, last year, then demand kind of reset to pre-pandemic levels. Then everything was going steady eddy, even basket amounts were pretty consistent year over year over year, meaning consumers spend about the same amount every time they went to the shop. But then with all of the narrative associated with inflation, recessions, all of this stuff, higher interest rates, more interest rates on your credit cards, et cetera. And then that money flowing out of the, out of the economy in terms of the excess savings, then what that resulted in is another step function downward in terms of the overall revenue. So this impacted a lot of states. A lot of states saw year over year uh, growth that was negative. Um, and then, uh, and I look at this year over year, by month. And at the macro level, 
um, it took a long time for the year over year growth to be positive. Now you'd see it in, in certain states and in those certain states would um, like on the data that you just displayed. And um, that would carry the rest of the, the US. But for the first time this month, we saw, or well, July data, we saw um, year over year growth trending positive in the entire macro market. And so in, I guess in some that there were a couple of different factors at play, return to work. And then there was a, a change in consumer behavior and their basket sizes went down because they were afraid of inflation, afraid of recession, et cetera. And that really leached into the minds of the consumers to the extent that it actually affected their behavior for the first time in you know recent history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first bear market in 10 years, first kind of um, huge impact on on grocery bills, gas, cannabis, whatever it is. My brother-in-law had to quit for a little while, and then now he's buying really inexpensive stuff um, to make butter. So he'll buy shake for like $30 an ounce, and that's kind of his way of, of still going to the store and being able to, to buy his medication or whatever, um, but just less expensively. So to your point, let's look at some of the, the um, average basket information. And that, again, this is the average size in sales dollars in retail for when people go in and they're buying. So we can see is maybe some of the obvious uh, a point is that California is the highest average cannabis basket, although that's dropped. It used to be $65 during COVID because that was the minimum for delivery. Now that's considerably come down because people are going in and spending less. We're seeing behind California's Colorado in second and Nevada third. Is that right? For I guess this tour is probably buying really expensive products like a $420 Canagar or something. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> other trends, maybe average canvas basket is increasing across the board. I'm kind of seeing uh, that's not really what I'm seeing. I'm seeing it leveling off. You see it plateauing, even coming down uh, on, which is interesting, not really interesting, but it seems like the, the emerging markets on the East Coast are coming down faster than it took the West Coast. Yeah, and that's that's no surprise to me as an economist, because the while the markets are getting their legs, uh, there's more supply, there's more availability, there's more competition. And as a result, prices are going to come down. Um, they were extraordinarily high to begin with. And then they have to compete also with the illicit market. Um, but in those high tourist areas, uh, like in Nevada, you're going to see a, a higher basket amount. But what we're seeing is that um, now, if we looked at that data going back two, three or four years, you'd see very, very consistent basket amounts. And then it wasn't just until recently that instead of purchasing the same amount, they actually started um, just purchasing less. Now, it wouldn't be necessarily less in terms of the amount of ounces or grams or what have you number of tinctures or edibles, it would be more that um, a situation where a consumer would go in with the mindset, I'm going to spend a certain amount. And then if they got a discount for their flour, then they would backfill their basket with something else, maybe a gummy or a pre-roll or something else to level that off. And consumers were very, very disciplined about budgeting for cannabis. And that's what made the demand and the basket amounts so consistent over time. 
but until but just recently that basket um they wouldn't the consumer wouldn't necessarily backfill with a pre-roll they would get their gram or their ounce or whatever and then that would be it they wouldn't add to their basket to make it the same amount and so that's why you're seeing some of this decline in in basket amounts in um in many of these states because they're just not backfilling and so that is problematic from a retailer perspective because you're still getting the foot traffic they're just not spending as much do you think that online orders are limiting those last minute purchases and part two of the question do you think an amazon style locker would deteriorate sales even further well when i look at retail and in full disclosure i've run retail operations before i was a coo of a large vertically integrated cannabis company before uh well at the same time doing some whitney economics work but um what we found is that the more traffic you could get the more touches with the consumer the better off you were the more transactions per day the greater the transactions the greater the revenue so having any and all opportunities in a you know controlled and legal manner to get consumers to purchase, um, then that's that's a really good thing for retailers. Um, now, when COVID hit, you had innovative ways to get product to the consumer. So you'd have curbside pickup and stuff like this. And so the operators at the retail level were able to generate more revenue per employee as a result of just expanding to curbside and then other online sales where you order online and then pick it up later, um, all of that really expanded the retail offerings and the retail revenue. How much of the number of products in a store determine the number of sales? Is there a correlation to that? We can see in Washington, we've got the highest number of SKUs out there, about 1,800. There's other places that are some of the more uh, mature markets, California, Colorado, Washington, have a little, have a little bit higher number of SKUs. Um, maybe that's additional competition, even though Washington doesn't have vertical integration like a lot of other places. What are you seeing in terms of any correlation between the number of SKUs and the number of sales? Well, it's a function not only of SKUs versus sales, but then also the retailers have to consider the consumer archetype that's visiting their shop. And if you, you can have a hundred SKUs, but if it's not resonating with the consumers that are visiting your store, then you're not going to get that pop in sales. So you can actually, and I've proven this with, <clears throat> through some of my consulting services in the retail uh, sector, you can actually reduce your inventory and reduce your SKUs and actually drive greater sales as long as those products are in line with the type of consumer that enters into your shop. Now, yeah. real quick, let me uh, interject real quick because there's an awesome story down in Oregon with Ed Dominion of uh, D6 who uh, makes all the packaging for Walmart and some cannabis companies, um, largest 3D printing for uh, Boeing, whatever. When I talked to him, he said that he reduced Walmart's end um, shelf unit the display unit he reduced it by like 30 percent, but then he color coded it so that the melons and watermelons and everything were on the outside framing it 
And then so by reducing the number of choices and enhancing the look, they increase sales exponentially. So I think you're from Oregon, right? Incredibly competitive market. So I would highly value that over somebody who's just entering in like Missouri, for example, who just won a license. I haven't been in operations very long. I haven't seen everything that we've seen on the West Coast for the last decade. Uh, so continue. Uh, I just think that that's really important to not really look at the number of sales, but look at the the way that you are handling those number of SKUs. Yeah, you know, the um, it's not just the a state-by-state analysis that needs to be done. You have to look at your neighborhoods because the elasticities of demand, which is the pricing sensitivity of consumers relative to price change, um, the the elasticities and those archetypes, they may change from neighborhood to neighborhood. You may have a a, a very flower-oriented shop um, in one neighborhood and you go down a half mile and it's tinctures and pre-rolls or tinctures and edibles. And so it's important for retailers to understand their consumer and then um, right-size their inventory to address the... Um, the consumer preferences, right? Yeah. And so in some of the instances where I've consulted, we've actually reduced the inventory costs by 10% and we increased revenue by 10% at the same time. So we pared things down, focused it towards that consumer, and then they were off to the races. And so I think that's really critical that once again, I can't emphasize it enough, know your customer, right? And if you know your customer, and you deliver and you have consistent supply, you don't have any supply hiccups or anything, then you know, you're know you going to be successful. I'll give you a firsthand example of I, price and convenience is how most people make their choices to buy anything regardless of what it is. So I um, am now going out of my way 20 minutes to go to another store because it's no longer convenient to go to the one that's right next to my house because their inventory is so bad they never have the flour I want. Uh, it'll get dropped, sold out in five days, and then they wait till the end of the month to buy another one. So I got to wait three weeks to buy that. So I'd rather yeah. go to another store that has the consistency. But what I've noticed is they have four different stores, and I'll go and I'll check it out, and they have four different SKUs, and four they're they're basically trying to target four different consumers at their four different locations, and so they'll yeah. have different stuff at different places. And I think it's a great strategy that they're doing. But the most important thing is consistently having that product. And there's no there's no excuse anymore with technology to not have things in stock. Like when you only order once a month because it's overwhelming because you have 1,800 SKUs, guess what? Reduce your SKUs. You're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, in some instances where they're heavy on the on the oils and tinctures and vapes, um, you know, you don't need 30 different jars of flour on the shelf. You know, you don't need 10 top jars because that may not be the, the products for your clients. And so I think it's, I can't stress that enough. Um, and you know, also, also, um, when retailers are choosing their suppliers, it's really important to know your supplier and avoid those stockouts. And so if you have that consistency of supply, then you can maintain your, your shelf space. Now, once again, this depends upon the market structure, but if you are in a limited license um, state, 
then it really kind of doesn't matter if you have that continuity of supply because it's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? You've got the demand captured, you've got limited retail access, et cetera. So basically consumers, unfortunately, will take what they, what they can get. In the unlimited license uh, states where there's high levels of retailers and high levels of suppliers and the like, then that's hyper-competitive. And so if you as a supplier run out and you don't manage your relationship with your retailer and give them a heads up, hey, I'm going to be out, but I'm only going to be out for three days, then you can, uh, if you're not that proactive about that, then you can get kicked off the shelf and then never get put back on because there's so much competition. So knowing your suppliers and knowing your supply chain is really critically important, not only as a supplier, but as a retailer, because otherwise it'll cost you a lot of money to get back on the shelf. You're going to have to discount. You're going to have to do all sorts of other stuff just to get back on the shelf. And then you've lost a lot of profit. Let's take a look at some of the um, store sales. This is um, median store, like store sales growth. Basically what that means is growth in sales for like stores. So that's filtering to exclude any new open stores or recently disconnected stores. Um, so California has the highest store sales growth in all the months. Colorado second, about his third. Um, looks like uh, maybe Florida has is is an anomaly out there. It's significantly lower than other states, but it's it's new, right? And they have limited licenses and all of those other reasons. Yeah, well, to a certain extent, I see some seasonality in this. Right. Because you're going to have that spike. I mean, all those spikes in April. Well, that's 420. Right. Um, yeah. and, and then so January is, is New Year's Eve. And then Fourth of July is July. If you take out those three yeah. holidays, they're all negative. Yes. And, you know, so um, and, you know, you're starting to see some prices rebound, um, especially on flour in some of these states. Um, and the reason for that is because it's, you know, it's in the summer and there's not a whole lot of outdoor supply that may influence the market and the market pricing. Um, and so prices will go up. And if that's the case, you will start increasing your same, same store sales. Um, but in general, the trend has been in the negative direction in terms of, you know, same store sales and the growth rates. Um, and we're at Whitney economics, we're not forecasting a, a rebound to pre pandemic growth rates for another five or six quarters. Hmm. Expand on that. What, what's your crystal ball prediction for, for the next couple of years? That's, that's just a year. Um, yep. do you have anything else that you can expand on that or extrapolate well, on? Your yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's still growth in this market in the U S market at the macro level, the growth is coming from the new markets, you know, the Missouri's, the New Jersey's, the New York's because, you know, you're just getting the consumer used to purchasing legally and you have a large amount of retail uh, recreational customers. And so that's going to drive just natural growth. Um, but we're we're forecasting that this growth is going to be suppressed because of other conditions outside of the cannabis industry. For example, it's really tough still to get the machinery required for air filtration air conditioning, climate control, 
all of that stuff because there's still some supply chain delays. Add to that, so that's your basic machinery to get started up. Add to that, um, labor costs are going up, your input costs are going up. If you have labor availability, then add to that, you've got higher interest rates due to the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates overall. So what was once a $2 million loan um, at a lower percentage, now that it's gone up 5%, you're paying an additional $100,000 a year in interest payments alone just on that startup cost. And so that is problematic, right? So what we're forecasting is although there's going to be growth, it's just not going to be very fast paced until interest rates start going down and until the cost of capital, until some of these supply chain issues get resolved. And so um, from that perspective, looking at the interest rates alone, the financing costs, if you can get access to financing, then you, um, you're looking late 24, early 25 at the earliest when there'll be more moderate interest rates, moderate finances, et cetera. All right, um, I'm gonna be doing a, a cannabis finance, banking, lending and investing uh, series coming up uh, fourth quarter. I'm gonna have to get you back on that because I got a, a ton more questions, but I think with that, um, we're gonna have to roll this one up. Where can people find you at, Bo? Where, where are you at? Where can people get more information on Whitney Economics? Yeah, you know, my team prides itself on its accessibility and availability. Um, we're at WhitneyEconomics.com and we're, you know, you can, on my website, you can get my phone number and just give me a call. And I generally always pick up unless I'm doing something like this. So I really appreciate the opportunity and appreciate the shout outs on, you know, the quality of work that me and my team are able to produce. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to another conversation. But with that, like I said, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Bo Whitney, founder of Chief Economics at Whitney Economics. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.